0: Zero Trust Networking falls into that category. It is how can I start to think not about blocking the bad, but only allowing the good? Because if you can get to a point where you only allow the good, all of the bad is inherently blocked and we have a much stronger security posture.
1: Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of Cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the clouds as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Altitude. Of course, I'm your host, Woody Woodworth. We have an awesome show for you today. I have with me one of my favorite people and one of the best security minds on the planet. Chris McHenry. He is a Director of Solution Strategy at Aviatrix. And we are here today to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is zero trust networking. And the reason I wanted to focus on this topic is, first and foremost, Chris is an expert in this topic and has a lot of good stuff to say. But also, in the previous podcast we did, uh, if you haven't checked it out, please do check it out with Heather Zay about cloud security. We touched upon the subject of zero trust networking, And I really wanted to dive more deeply into the subject because I want to tear it apart, discover it, put it all back together again for you, the listener. Um, So Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, thanks, Woody. It's great to be here.
1: Absolutely. So uh, yeah, let's just kick off with the subject, Zero Trust Networking. I guess I first picked up on this term maybe about a year ago. I started seeing it in some of the industry websites and um, industry blogs and news sites and stuff like that, networking world. But I suspect that it's been around probably longer than that. So maybe we could just unpack the term. So the term zero trust.
0: First off, I think it's a great marketing term, right? I mean, that yeah. we can talk a little bit more about about what it actually means because I think that is one of the most important pieces here is is figuring out not just the theoretical, but also how we can practically implement this kind of kind of thing. But the, the term zero trust has been around for a while. Uh, I think it was an analyst at Forrester that 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 kind of um, initially talked about it. And then really over the last four or five years, it's gained steam. You know, one of the big things, uh, several kind of big market movements that I think started capturing it. I remember uh, maybe in the late 2010s when software-defined networking started to become more of a thing, we were talking a lot about micro-segmentation and how do we use the network to bring more security in, reduce the blast radius of potential attacks a lot of this has also become a lot more relevant when we've saw, you know, seen, seen a lot of these examples uh, around ransomware, right? Where we've got these applications that can, or these infections that can quickly spread in an environment. And so we've looked at, okay, well, you know, obviously all of these little bolt-on pieces of, you know, threat detection and blocking and firewalling and all of this kind of stuff that we have today, even the antivirus on our, you know, on our computers, it's not enough. Right. And so we need to start thinking a little bit more proactive about how do we not just stop the bad things, but if you think about it in kind of the flip side, how do we allow just the good things? The bad things can't get in. Right. And so, you know, zero, zero trust, I think, is to some extent, it's aspirational. Right. But it's also maybe more importantly than that, a flip in the way that we think about implementing security and we'll talk about some of the pros and cons and some of the challenges there now I will say this one of, one of one of my big problems with the term is that I, I think the the term itself implies perfection which is like oh yeah you're gonna have zero trust everything is always going to be completely authenticated and trust but verify and re-evaluate trust and posture constantly and you know there's so much perfection implied here many real enterprises, Tell me an enterprise project that has been implemented to perfection. And so I think that's one of the dangers in this is that our success criteria is, uh, in the name itself, somewhat implies perfection. Everything in marketing implies perfection. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh-huh. a good, excellent yeah. point. Excellent point. But yeah, no, zero, tri- especially over the last several years, I really think ransomware is one of the big things that that has has kind of kicked the industry into action. Mm. is the bad guys are gonna get in. It's a question of what can they get to? What can they influence? What can they interrupt once they get in? And zero trust networking is an an incredibly powerful way to mitigate the potential impacts of a breach.
1: So you mentioned earlier that it was a flip. Dive into that, it's a flip against what?
0: Yeah, it's a flip against how we think about implementing security. And uh, I think we can, can talk about some reasons why, but if we rewind like 20 years, and we think about what firewalls were at the turn, you know, of the of the century, yeah, right? I mean, the, the firewalls have been around for a long time, um, but they were primarily about some basic things like connecting your private network to the internet. You might have some limited inbound policy for a web server that you're hosting. But as businesses have you know, gotten much more digitized and the internet is s- such a, a bigger part of our daily lives, that line between the internet and your private network has gotten a lot blurrier. So in about you know, 2007, 2008, uh, we said, oh man, we need, to, we need to get smarter about this. And Palo Alto Networks, to their credit, did an incredible job of building a technology platform, you know, this concept of a next generation firewall, which did more than just basic, you know, allow and deny policies. It started to look inside the traffic and it did this thing called threat detection. In Palo Alto, I remember I was competing against them at the time and it, amazing. Like I said, it was it was really amazing um, seeing, seeing them come in because what they would do is they would take their firewalls and they'd take the traffic, and they'd mirror that traffic to the firewalls, and they'd say, hey, just look at all these things that we can see. Look at all these threats that we detected, that we discovered. And if you had a Palo Alto firewall here, then we would be blocking those. And so we went through this phase from about 2007 to 2015 where threat detection was the thing that you needed to do because your enterprise and your applications were so incredibly complex, you didn't know what somebody needed, what somebody didn't need. Uh, I'm sure that that many, many organizations, you know, very simple uh, kind of example of this is many organizations struggle to uh, do basic things like URL blocking for for their users, right? Figure out which, which domains and which sites people can go to because the users do, you know, they, they do lots of different things, right? Okay, if I can't solve that perfect allow list, I can at least detect the threats. And we had tools like Alto that made that incredibly successful. On, on, the, on the, um, the workstation side, uh, we had also an incredible amount of innovation in endpoint detection and response, network detection and response. It's about detecting and responding to something that is already attacking you, right? And so it's finding the threats. Now the problem with that model, you don't know what they're going to do next until they've already done it and so you have these security teams at, at these major vendors that are spinning up uh, these massive threat research teams and they've got tons of data and the, the minute they see a new attack they're going to try to find a way to block it and detect it and and but it's always a cat and mouse game and so i think we saw around 2015 2016 we saw some massive incidents where a couple things changed one uh, again, I'll, I'll go back to ransomware uh, as an example. Um, there's a a book that I actually have right behind me called Sandworm, which is written by a guy named Andy Greenberg. And it walks through uh, one of the Russian nation-state attacks uh, in the Ukraine, uh, ironically, probably about five or six years ago. And it was a cyber attack, and a lot of US enterprises were affected by it. And there was one US enterprise that he talks about that lost 60,000 machines in five minutes, right? And it was using also, by the way, uh, several zero-day exploits that none of the security vendors uh, knew about yet, right? And so what that did was it It changed the way that people were thinking about security. Up until that point, it was, I'm going to offload my security to these threat research teams, and we're going to detect threats as quickly as possible, and we're going to stop them, and we're going to focus on threat. And after we saw several very high-profile, very expensive, very business-impacting exploits and attacks, uh, people started thinking, oh, we can't do this, right? There's got to be a better way. And that's really where Zero Trust started to take off. Does this predate SolarWinds? If this predates SolarWinds, actually. this the Actually, this was a similar uh, scenario right. with SolarWinds. It was another supply chain attack. This particular attack was based on a piece of tax and accounting software that every enterprise was... Think about like the TurboTax for Ukraine, right? right? Every enterprise that did business in the Ukraine needed to use this piece of software. To submit their taxes to the, you know, to the to the country of the Ukraine, and if you were an international business and you didn't have your network isolated between your business operations in Ukraine and you know, business operations elsewhere, and you had to use this tax software, that tax software was the, you know, that that was the thing that got uh, the attackers in, and then they instituted a, a, a ransomware attack that was primarily aimed at disruption, not just monetization, but disruption. Uh, ironically, fun you know, little anecdote of the story too. It happened, I believe, on the day before taxes were due. Um, so it was again very intentionally timed. That's one story, right? There's probably 50 other stories about you know significant disruption and attacks that start at a very small point in the network, but behind the firewall, and then expand extremely rapidly uh, inside inside of environment. So a lot of these things really kicked people into gear and said, okay, I need to get serious, not about detection, just about detection. Detection's important, right? But I need to get serious, not about detection, but I need to get serious about prevention. And that is the fundamental shift, right? We were thinking mostly from the perspective of security about detection, maybe some preventative measures, like basic things like patch management, vulnerability management, Uh, Zero trust networking falls into that category. It is how can I start to think not about blocking the bad, but only allowing the good? Because if you can get to a point where you only allow the good, all of the bad is inherently blocked. And we have a much stronger security posture.
1: Okay, so let me reframe this then for for myself and the listener to make sure I got it correctly. We have this period where Palo Alto emerges as the poster child of security kind of if we do the meme thing you know how it started versus how it's going now right that that popular kind of meme presentation so how it starts yeah yep. with modern enterprise security maybe i think you mentioned early 2000s Paolo comes out and says it's about deep inspection it's about threat detection and prevention it's about blocking the bad guys and then that seems to prosper for a while and then some years later about what time did you mention we get this? Um, 2014, 2015 timeframe, I, okay. I can't remember exactly. Okay, and then suddenly the tables turn around uh, 2014, and we see more sophisticated hackers able to penetrate that strategy. And I assume that what they're doing is, instead of acting as a known bad entity, which Palo or Checkpoint or Fortnet, et cetera, are going to block, all these next gener- generation firewalls are pretty queued up on uh, detecting bad things they're writing in on good signals isn't that correct yeah they're able to circumvent that concept of let's let's pretend to be a bad entity let's find a way to masquerade ourselves as a good entity once we get in we're going to move laterally right and thus they're impersonating as something or someone you trust Thus, zero trust means don't trust anything or anyone because that signal, which you think is accurate or trustworthy or good, in fact, could be nefarious. Is that correct? I would say that's
0: one piece of it. Right. Understanding how and who to trust uh, is is an incredibly important part of zero trust. But I I actually break it down into two things Mm -hmm. to to implement a zero trust policy. You need to understand who and what. It's what, it's what it's allowed to do. So the who that, you know, do I trust this person in the first place, right? That that's an important one. And then the second piece is the what, right? So what are you, I, once I trust you, what are you allowed to do? And in both pieces of that, we need to have like really good sources of identity, really good sources of trust. And then the second piece is we need to have really granular policy, right? Because I might trust someone, but not too much, right? And so if I trust you just a little bit then we're only going to allow you to get to things that are non-sensitive. And so both of those things are important. Importantly, you can work on both of them at the same time, and individually, they'll both get you benefit. That is kind of an interesting piece of it. But I actually would break it down a little bit motivationally here, is I think, and this is maybe my opinion, but I think that in the 2000, like 2010s, the attackers just became much more sophisticated. And in addition to sophistication, there was monetary incentive. So the introduction of ransomware, the acceleration of nation state attackers and motivation behind that, it heats up the cat, cat and mouse game. Before the monetization, where we're looking at, you know, not just ransomware, but also crypto mining as an example, right? Because let's say that I get into your network and I want to make money off of it. I just turn your entire, you know, every single machine that you have into a Bitcoin miner and we're printing free money essentially, right? Right. So so that, that monetization where we started seeing things that weren't just people trying to be disruptive, but people trying to make money off of other organizations by exploiting them, that really upped the sophistication because when there's money involved, then people are incentivized to invest in it.
1: Yeah. Here's an interesting question before we get too far along that thought. It's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, around 2010, more professional kind of cyber criminal that's really after serious money, serious capitalization. I don't want to say like an organized crime kind of thing, but almost like a syndicate, right? Like these people are well-trained. They know what they're doing. They're going for big, big prizes. That seems to coincide with the rise of cloud. Is that a coincidence? Ooh, they are absolutely related.
0: Okay. right. For a lot of probably nuanced reasons. But what I will say is that one of the things that cloud did is it essentially killed the perimeter. And many of these legacy security technologies were designed to be able to secure things when I own a physical demarcation between my private network and my physical data, remember the data then, the data is still physical, it is on disks in your data center, on tapes attached to the network, right? There's a physical demarcation between my network and the internet. It's a cable that plugs into a firewall. And when we move to cloud, the the, the perimeter starts to get really, really messy, right? And uh, one of the things that has always been Surprising to me about cloud networking is how ridiculously easy it is to put something on the internet. And that's great for a developer, right? I mean, it's kind of the, the the easy button thing. As a security professional, it makes me really nervous. Like, let's take this as an example. So now you have cloud, you have these developers, they're going out and they're building these applications. And one of them says, oh man, I need this app that I'm building to query my BI system that lives on premises. So you go to the networking team and the networking team builds a VPN tunnel to that little area in the cloud where you've got your application deployed. And in that moment, my perimeter disappeared. And so now it's just, there's so many doors that you can go knocking on. It's like I used to have this one giant you know, metal door with a 15 combination lock. Now I have thousands of doors and I really only need one of them to be open in order to exploit an organization. I think that's one of the the big things, right, is the internet just, the perimeter started to dissolve because of cloud. The internet started to get much more intertwined. We have things at the same time like BYOD, right, which are doing, BYOD doesn't exist if cloud doesn't exist because you have to be able to, the reason you do BYOD is because you can go to a coffee shop and you can work, right? Right. So BYOD doesn't exist if the cloud doesn't exist. So cloud, the rise of SaaS applications, all these kinds of things. I mean, I look at it a little bit more from a network security perspective, which is why I give that example around the VPN and the and the app user. But um, for many, many reasons, I think they are absolutely intertwined.
1: That was a really good point that the rise of professional cybercrime and cloud Causation doesn't always imply correlation, but I think in this case, there's an argument to be made that they were looking for soft targets, easy targets. And they were also looking at places where innovation was happening because where innovation happens, they know that there will be loose governance. And they know that when you're moving fast, you don't always have time for proper security controls. So they were very savvy in that way to turn their eye, the eye of Sauron, you know, moving around and then finding cloud and being like that and then they found these soft targets definitely due to this idea of perimeter everywhere definitely due to this idea of give me convenience or give me death like the dead kennedy's album i'm an old punk rocker um so i I love that analogy but you know what's most important is agility and speed in business and i just need to download some packages and i just want internet access now because the business demands it now and so hackers are like great i'll i'll exploit that but i think there's more than that story too yeah first off punk, punk rocker i now know
0: why you moved to seattle from from boone uh, it's yes. it's we've we've cleared this up
1: no that's that's absolutely true <laughs> when i was attending uh app state which is where i did my undergrad in in history and music I, I didn't really understand a shred of technology at that point other than you know how to play world warcraft on my friends you know pentium 2 or something we were like, we want to get as far away from this town as possible and go somewhere where there's a good music scene. And we picked Portland at the time because the grunge thing was was kind of blowing over in Seattle. and We thought Portland would be a, a cool close second. So yeah, I've been I've been out here ever since. So it was punk rock that that made me move and triggered the domino yeah. effect that ends up really in a weird way having us talk. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So yeah, it's it's about this loose perimeter and in many ways in, and BYAD, bring your own device for our, our uh, listeners that might not know that. You know, this accelerates with COVID as well, but I think it's also about how governance in the cloud is fundamentally different than governance in, in the data center. I like that's there's, there's another facet to that piece, right? Meaning that cloud is this great melting pot of collaboration, right? You have different people with different projects, different aspirations, different Uh, roles that are all moving into cloud all operating kind of simultaneously to hit critical mass and unlike the traditional data center world if you don't give them the right level of access and the right level of because you said yourself it's not just about who you are but what you have access to and I think in cloud that explodes that paradigm even further um, because now you have a lot of other people coming out of the woodwork who want access to things in unconventional ways who didn't Necessarily have that, and then zero trust thus becomes super critical for cloud, more so than than on prem, right? Is is that a legitimate argument? Oh, that is a, a completely legitimate arg-
0: argument, and I, I will go one step further and, and argue that to some extent, cloud might have been enterprise security teams' fault because they weren't willing to move fast enough. Yeah, right. And so when you think about the core drivers of applications moving to cloud is speed, right? What are one? What is one of the biggest things that slowed people down on-premises? Security policy, right? I mean, I still to this day have worked with a number of organizations. We'll talk about this because I think this is. I think this is actually one of the most important problems for us to solve, is that we need to be able to do security at speed, at the speed that cloud expects, right? When we talk about what does a zero trust network architecture look like this is not shoving firewalls in right because if i do that we're going to just go around them again as an application owner so so that speed right still multiple organizations very common i hear hey my firewall my rule request time frame i had this conversation yesterday like it still happens all the time it takes me 10 days to get a new firewall policy plugged in, right? Don't tell me you're going to go do least privilege access because I'm now going to have to, to slow down every single little thing that I do by 10 days. Every single time I need a new policy, I need to, I need to, uh, I need to wait 10 days for that to get put in the firewalls. And that, that was the old way. That's the on-prem way. So to some extent, if you think about one of the core drivers to the cloud being speed, one of the things that application owners were trying to get away from was the slowness of the security policy. And and on some respects, what happened was they said, I'm gonna take this on myself. I can do good security. We're gonna use things like security groups. We're gonna use things like shifting that security left and building it into my development pipelines. And you know, what we'll, what we'll take care of the security, security team. We're gonna do this in a cloud like way. It's gonna be faster and it's still gonna be secure. Now Unfortunately, uh, people don't, that's that's like honor system, right? It's like, I promise, trust me, I'll do it better, right? So the governance that you had mentioned beforehand is critically important. Uh, But as we do that, um, we really need to think about how we rein the security back in. And yes, zero trust, we'll get back to zero trust. Zero trust is an important component of this. But I would say more broadly, when we rein the network security back in, we cannot impose the speed penalty. We have to do it in a way that's cloud first. And that's another big transition and a a thought process change for security organizations. Zero trust is not the only way, right? We we actually need a combination between threat detection and zero trust. You will not be able to do full perfect zero trust in every part of your business. Should you do it in your crown jewels? Yeah, we should start there, start in the data lakes, start in the places that have PII, start in the places that have PCI. By the way, nice little aside, PCI, one of the most successful you know, security certification programs of all time, it, one of the big fundamental components of PCI is network segmentation. You can think about it a little bit like a bubble of zero trust, where anything that has cardholder data needs to stay inside of this bubble, right? So, so that's a perfect example of how zero trust can help us apply proactive principles to security in certain areas, but maybe other areas you just need visibility and threat and the ability to respond and, and all of that kind of stuff. So more broadly than just zero trust. I think it's critically important for network security teams for security teams to think about how, as we start to implement security in the cloud, uh, whether it be threat detection, whether it be you know uh, threat prevention with something like zero trust, we need to be able to do it at the speed that cloud expects. Because if the cloud slows down, we
1: lost our value. So then to complete the meme, how it started, Palo Alto, early 2000s, poster child for, threat detection, threat prevention, known bad put, versus how it's going now, the other picture in the meme, would be that things still aren't exactly perfect in cloud or far from perfect in cloud because zero-trust network architecture first isn't the complete answer. And second, the existing tools and technologies like next-generation firewalls are still too slow. Yes. Or maybe they were fine on-prem, but then we're moving them to cloud as kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And it's kind of, in in an ironic way, foiling the reason that cloud began with in the first place, which is speed, velocity, agility. That's exactly correct. Some people, like application owners, DevOps people, might be frustrated. I'm just gonna role play here and be like, oh God, here here comes IT again, right? I just got away from this, and then here they are chasing me around with their firewall stuff, and it's gonna screw up my business. You know, maybe that's a challenge, I don't know. What other challenges around this are we seeing in the cloud? And then the second part of that question would be, if there's a better way, what is it? Let's dive into that. How do we achieve this speed and velocity? How do we keep things secure? How do we make everyone happy? How do we give security professionals and network professionals the tools to collaborate successfully so that they're not, you know, seen as the bad guy, but yet we keep these lines of business humming?
0: Yeah, uh, man, great question. So I think you nailed it. First off, um, and it's it's so it's so interesting to me because way too often I've seen the reaction of enterprises as they start to rein in and govern the cloud landscape, where they just lift and shift their old security model into the cloud. And so it's not a theoretical like we we shouldn't uh, we we can't impose the speed penalty. I mean, you, you look at best practices for, I mean, there's plenty of, there's plenty of architectures out there to bring your next generation firewalls with you to the cloud. And you build this centralized security hub and you manage policy with the exact same tools that you had beforehand. And, and we impose the speed penalty. One of the challenges too, I think fundamentally, and this is why there's opportunity, one reason I'm just super excited to be here at Aviatrix, right. Is there are certain transitions where you kind of have to start from scratch. And one of the transitions that I have yet to see a traditional on-premises vendor make without a wholesale replatform is making their product programmable, right? There's no new NGFW vendors in the last 10 years, uh, five years even. And programmability didn't really become a thing in infrastructure until about 10 years ago, right? So every single vendor has a bolted on API. And to be honest, it shows, right? So when we think about one of the most critical things when we want to improve security and we want to avoid the speed penalty is we need to be programmable. We need to slide in into those pipelines. We need to use the same languages that people are using to deploy infrastructure as code. We need to have you know, automated somewhat self-service policy within within reason, right? Within, within uh, you know, predefined guardrails and things along those lines. But whatever system that enforces that policy has to be as fast as cloud is. And uh, it's very difficult to do that, A, with legacy software and B, second challenge, it's difficult to do that if you have to think too much about the network actually, right? Because one of the things that slows policy down is the application owner doesn't know the network. So the application owner comes and they say, hey, my application needs to talk to this other thing. And that's what they submit from a rule request perspective. Then there's somebody that has to go look at that, who understands the network topology, who understands where the control points are, who understands where the firewalls are. And by the way, it might not be one control point because, oh, by the way, if I'm in multi-cloud, then I have multiple different languages, multiple different tools that I have to enforce policy. There's limitations and, you know, what I can do within a subscription in Azure versus between subscriptions in Azure. There's all of these little caveats. So there's a translation phase that happens. So the app owner says, hey, this is my intent. This is the policy that I need. This is how my application behaves. And then I send that over to the network security translator. And this is, okay, well, this needs to go in these four firewalls. And I'm going to create an NSG and I'm going to do these. Services. That's why it's 10 days, Right. And then, oh, by the way, as soon as that application auto scales, I have to go back through that process again. And I have to say, add this IP address because network security still Uh is based on IPs for the most part.
1: Pause there. There's a critical inflection point. So again, role playing. I'm a CISO or director of cloud cybersecurity. I hear this pitch. What you really need is a programmable security environment that can move at the speed of business and cloud, blah, blah, blah. It's all architecture, and I say I've got that covered. I've got AlgoSec, I've got TuFin. I have this layer that's adaptive that speaks these APIs you mentioned. Everyone bolts on an API to be programmable, and that hasn't changed. The firewall field hasn't changed at all in the last five years. So these, you know, tools, with Army Knife tools, have come out to do that umbrella programming across this big ecosystem. But what you're saying is that it's not just about that. It's about this ability to natively understand the cloud workload in the language that it speaks. And it doesn't speak IPs. IPs are just some other, I don't wanna say irrelevant, but semi-trivial data that the workload carries underneath it to get its job done. But that really there's there's more important data that these applications and workloads yield that a policy engine could grab onto like in an elastic way to keep pace with this. Is this correct? Absolutely. And to, to okay. generalize it a little bit, right? Back to zero
0: trust. Remember the who, who are you, and what are you allowed to do? IP addresses used to be the only, the best form of identity that we had. You are this IP, so I will apply a policy to you, right? And so anytime you're doing zero trust, to to make it as seamless as possible, I need to be able to to, to apply a policy to an identity that moves with you, right? And in the cloud, we have that. We have tags. We have APIs. We can understand attributes. I can understand this is in this subscription, and it's a you know it's it has this data sensitivity, and it supports this application. Now, by the way, one other important concept. I use the term identity because I think it is important. But um, a lot of people, when they think about identity, they think I'm a finance user, right? Or I have this login in Active Directory. That doesn't actually work for workloads. Workloads don't have a meaningful active directory account, right? especially when we get into paths and containers and all those kinds of stuff. So what, what is the workload's identity? It's tagging, right? Every cloud has the ability to tag and, and there's innate attributes that we can pull from the cloud. And if I could start to write policy like that, I can cut out half of the change requests entirely, right? From a, from a security policy perspective, because as soon as a new workload spins up or that workload gets rebooted and it gets a new IP address, I understand the tags, I understand the identity of that workload, not its IP address, and the policy can automatically evolve instantaneously. Awesome.
1: So we've covered a tremendous amount of ground. There's one last question that I want to uh, tackle with you here. Back to this earlier conversation piece we were having, which is the kind of elephant in the room, the disparity, the love-hate relationship between developers, application owners, and IT and security, because one wants to protect, the other one wants to move quick. How do we make zero trust a collaborative tool for these two parties? Who should own it? I'm not trying to cast the shadow that DevOps people and security people don't get along and collaborate. I'm sure they do a lot of places in the industry, but they're fundamentally at different purposes. One wants to protect and take time the other wants to move fast, right? So just from their DNA, they, they kind of can be at odds with each other. So do we have an opportunity in cloud to resolve this? And if so, how? I mean I, I hear this term Devsecops. Yeah it, it, absolutely. and and
0: I think that this is why I made Aviatrix. I think that it's it's a little challenging. As a security team, we really need to challenge ourselves to push the speed boundary right what we've seen over the last 10 years is that speed wins right we're coming in behind and trying to apply governance and if if we if we think mm-hmm. about it like that we are constantly going to be bolting on solutions to these cloud environments and we're going to get tons of reports and we're going to pass them over to the developers and we say hey you're failing this report and they may or may not do anything. They get a slap on the wrist and they're like, oh, but guess what? My application made the business a billion dollars yesterday, right? So we really need to challenge ourselves. I don't think the tools uh, from a security perspective in the clouds are really designed to do what enterprises need them to do today, right? The, the scale isn't there necessarily for for true zero trust policy. Uh, The governance isn't really there. I think uh, developers always uh, lean towards more open security policies than more closed security policies. And there's a lot of complexity, right? As soon as you start to get into network security, you have to start thinking about some really intensive networking things. Yes, programmability, self-service, really important. Culture, extremely important, right? You need to have a culture of a shared responsibility, where the developers feel the level of responsibility for security. But then we need the tools too, right? Because if the tools don't allow the developer to do effective security and to do it fast, then it's, it's not gonna get done. And that, that brings me back to kind of the second piece that I was talking about earlier, which is that translation part. There is too much required understanding in the intent of a network security policy about the the configuration of the network as a whole. And, and you might need to understand things that are not even in your domain. You might need to understand, oh, I've got a firewall in this little hub over here, and it, it's gonna hit this traffic, but it's not gonna hit this traffic. So in my opinion, we need to rethink uh, the control point as well. The only way I think that we can really eliminate the barrier to entry where, where security can move at the speed of cloud is we have to stop thinking about perimeter entirely and we need to think about embedding security into the entire fabric of the network itself. We need the network as a whole to understand at every point how to apply and enforce a security policy, how to do all the things that security needs to do. It's not just zero trust, it's threat detection, it's visibility, it's forensics, it's alerting, it's all of those kinds of things. Because if security is everywhere, I can just define the intent because we know that the network can enforce it and the developer now just says, my application needs to talk to this thing. And the network, because it is everywhere and it has security everywhere, can take that policy and figure out how to enforce it. And that is where we start to get into this concept of intent-based security. And I think the only way that we can do that is if you have a centralized policy control point and a distributed network that has the ability to enforce as close to the application and at every point you know, in between, right? Because that's the only way that you can completely
1: ironically forget about the network. That was very enlightening and awesome. I've never really thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. And we should do a follow-up maybe a couple of months from now and see how, how it's going to see what is happening in the industry with security baked into the network? Talk about adoption, key players. You know, I think there is a there there. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really, really fun, Woody. Really fun. Yeah, and and
0: I'll also say this: like, we got some really cool stuff cooking here. I'm just thrilled. Like, we're gonna have more and more stuff to talk about over the next next several months.
1: Good deal. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in. Um, hope everyone has a great day wherever you are, and we'll see you on the next episode, thanks.